Here's the thing. We're going to have to learn together as a body of Christ to do all sorts of things on this land. Some of those things are going to be easy and joyful. When we first gathered here, it was very easy to say, thank you, God, for this place. But we're going to have to learn to do other things here. We're going to have to learn how to be sad and grieve here at times. We're going to have to find ways of having joy and grief mingled together at times. This is something that's a strange tension for Christians in this life in the world. But one of the things we'll have to do here is we'll have to learn to obey Christ here. So our mission as a church is abiding in Christ as his disciples. And we get this from John chapter 15, mainly. And one of the interesting things there is that Jesus says, you know, abide in me and you'll bear much fruit. You cannot bear fruit if you don't abide in me. You can, bear, you can do nothing apart from me. But then he says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. And so that our mission as a church grows out of this section of Scripture. And what we see in Hebrews this morning is much the same. It is about obeying Christ, learning to obey him. Okay, so I want to ask you, how many of you have seen the movie WALL-E? Pixar movie, Wally. It is not my favorite of the Pixar films. It's about a robot who was built to clean up trash on Earth. And humans have been sent to live in space because Earth has become uninhabitable. Kids love this stuff, right? Now, Wally is the last of the robots that are left alive. These cleaners, trash picker-uppers. And the really interesting part of the movie to me is when you see what's happening with the human beings. So they've been evacuated from Earth by this major corporation. And they live on these giant starliners. And they're being controlled there through excess. They're eating too much and they're constantly consuming technology. They're in this constant daze. So one, at one point in the film, uh, the technology, the screen is knocked out from in front of one of the human beings. And they say, oh, I didn't know there was a pool there. They've been just sucked in. Uh, it's to the point they live in wheelchairs and the children, too, are raised by technology. It's an entirely futuristic imaginary world, right? Catch that? Oh, sorry, that was a joke. Now, others have made the connection that Wally is similar to the book Brave New World that was uh, released in the 19, early 1930s. Again, it's a futuristic world where people are controlled through comfort. They never have to suffer anything unpleasant. The key is a drug called Soma that people take to moderate any negative feelings. Now, there's one particular conversation in the book that I want to share with you. John is a character who rebels against the forced comfort of this world. And one of the officials tells him, this. If ever by some unlucky chance anything unpleasant should somehow happen, why there's always Soma to give you a holiday from the facts. And there's always Soma to calm your anger, to reconcile you to your enemies, to make you patient and long-suffering. In the past, you could only accomplish these things by making a great effort and after years of hard moral training. Now, you swallow two or three half-gram tablets, and there you are. Anybody can be virtuous now, he says. You can carry at least half your morality about in a bottle. And here's the most important part of the quote. 
Christianity without tears. That's what Soma is. Now John makes clear he has no interest in this kind of life, saying, I'm claiming the right to be unhappy. (laughs) Now we've been listening to the letter of Hebrews, which is a, a letter written to a group of weary Christians. They are weary because following Jesus has consistently made them outsiders to the world around them. They have experienced ridicule, theft, and abuse of every kind. And their Christianity has been filled with tears. The writer is essentially telling them, do not give up on your faith in Christ. There is much more to lose than you realize. The writers just called them at the end of chapter 4 to draw near to Christ's throne of grace, to receive mercy and find grace to help in their time of need. Now in the passage today, what the writer does is he summarizes Jesus' own journey to becoming the merciful high priest that he is for human beings. So I want you to listen again to how the writer describes Jesus' own journey to becoming a merciful high priest. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. So the writer is not saying that this is what one single part of Jesus' life was like. One particular instance of Jesus' life. He's saying this is what most of Jesus' life was like. Jesus' life was one ongoing extended sacrifice to God. So the language here, when it says that Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears, the language of offering up is the language of an Old Testament sacrifice. Jesus' form of sacrifice was his entire life. It was given up in the form of loud, crying prayers and tear-filled supplications to God. So most high priests offer up these animals, right, in the temple. But the writer is saying, no, Jesus' offering was this ongoing offering of his life to God. And Golgotha, the cross, was Jesus' final cry when he offered himself up to death and said, It is finished. Now, I want to start this by just saying that I know some of you, just from talking and walking with you, others I may not know it, you may not talk about it often, but some of you feel like this is your life to a degree, an ongoing offering of tear-filled prayers. And you need to know that you're not alone in that. You need to realize that. You need to realize that when you live a life of tear-filled days and tear-filled prayers, you're not alone. In fact, you're in very good company. Don't fall into a trap of believing that that is a wasted life. That perhaps there could be a Christianity without tears on this side of the world. It does not exist. 
Now we're told that Jesus offered his prayers to one who was able to save him from death and that he was heard because of his, re- because of his reverence. And when, when it says that he was heard because of his reverence, it means that his sacrifice, the offering of his life to God, was received in heaven. His sacrifice was received by God. And then we hear the writer say that even though he was a son... He learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, what the writer is saying here is, how do you expect to escape it yourself if the son himself had to suffer? It's impossible to escape it. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now, it is odd. I think it's odd. I don't I don't know if you think it's odd, but I think it is, to think of Jesus needing to be made perfect. As if Jesus could have ever not been perfect. As if he could have been imperfect. What is the writer saying? The biblical idea of perfection entails wholeness and completion, not just a moral exactitude. So perfection for humans speaks to our entire being, mental, emotional, spiritual, and moral. All of these things being presented to God. So even Jesus, though he was God, would still grow in wisdom and in stature before God and man. And his life was not whole or complete until he fulfilled all of God's purposes for him, namely the cross and the resurrection. He could not have done this just as an infant. He grew to the point of being a man. And then he offered himself fully in the cross and the resurrection. So this is the entire journey of Jesus to being the merciful high priest that he is. It is a life presented as a sacrifice to God in the form of tear-filled prayers, groanings before God much of his life. It is an obedience that was learned through suffering and a perfection that's only gained at the very end when he offers himself up to the point of death. That is when Jesus is perfected, when he is made whole. And in one sense, the writer is presenting all of this to us with the question, if this is your Lord and your high priest, How could you expect to discover a Christianity without tears for you too? How is it possible that following Jesus would not entail tears for anyone? Now, I want to tease this out a little more by talking about the topic that I introduced at the beginning of obedience. The writer says that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered and that being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who, to all who obey him. Obey him. Now, our church believes with the church through the ages that a person only enters into relationship with God through grace. Through grace. It's not through the accumulated efforts by our own strength. It's not our 
decentness before God that gives us a relationship with Him. It's only His grace. We believe that we're rescued from our sin, from the world, the flesh, and the evil one, the devil, by grace, through faith in God and the work of Jesus Christ, His offering to God. So I want to say that if you are not a Christian, if you haven't come to Christ, then you, you can come, and you should come. You should come to Christ, and the only way that you'll ever come to Him and live in relationship with Him is through grace, because of His kindness and His mercy. That is, this, that is true for any human being. But Hebrews also places a strong emphasis on obedience. And obedience is not a very fashionable word today, I don't think. For people today, obedience has a narrow and rigid sound to it. I think the question might be asked, who needs obedience if you have love? In parenting, it seems to me like obedience is out, even with much younger children, and the idea of using persuasion is in. You have to just persuade them to do what you'd like them to do. Don't make them obey. Just love them enough. Why is obedience important in the Bible? Or or do we still need this word, obedience? Now, this is something that's really difficult to see in our Bibles. But in both the main original languages of the Bible, Greek and Hebrew, the root word for listen and the root word for obey is the exact same word. So, Jews... Uh, Jews even today repeat the Shema daily from Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God. The Lord is one. And Shema is the word for hear. And at the same time, it is also the word for obey. Hearing and obeying were meant to be one and the same act. If you listened, then you also obeyed. Now this morning in our passage in Hebrews, we're told that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. And then the writer says to the people, about this we have a lot to say to you, but it's hard to explain because you have become dull of hearing. And in both cases, the root word is the exact same. Jesus' obedience and their dullness of hearing. Their inability to hear would mean that they could no longer obey. In other words, if you don't listen to God, you can't obey Him. And if you're not obeying Him, then you're actually not listening to Him. What's the relationship between these words? Now, it might not be on the level of obedience, but think about any human relationship that you have people that it's important that you listen to. So if one of you came to me and expressed a concern, or if Katie came and asked me to help with something, help her with something, you are going to judge how well I listened (laughs) based on how I respond, aren't you? And if I make a habit of not responding in a particular way, you're going to wonder how important the relationship really is to me. 
And Katie especially will wonder that. Spouses, if you repeatedly say something and the other spouse doesn't respond, don't you wonder how important the relationship is to the other? Our responses show the nature of our relationship, whether it's important to us or not, whether we're listening to each other. So this is what the Bible expresses with relationship to God, but it's on this magnified, grander level. Hearing and obedience are supposed to be one and the same thing. Hearing God and responding with obedience becomes, is supposed to become a single movement. And obedience means you're listening, that you're seeking to be in relationship with God. You see, love, as I think we, would know, we all know today, can be twisted into all sorts of things. The definition depends on who you ask. But obedience is the fruit of love. And this is why Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. So, our church believes that all of us must be saved by grace and that we can only live a relationship with God through grace. His continual mercy toward us. But the fruit of that relationship that is rooted in grace is a life of listening to and obeying God. But again, remember what the writer tells us, that even though Jesus was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. How do you think we're going to learn obedience? We're being prepared here for what the writer's going to tell us later, that it is for discipline that you have to endure, he tells the people that he's writing to. It's for discipline, the formation that comes through struggle, that you have to endure. God is treating you like he did Jesus. He's treating you as sons, as children. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? The writer asks, and then he says, to not be disciplined is like being abandoned by one's parents. It's like not having loving parents. In other words, back to the beginning, there is no such thing as a Christianity that is without tears. Any path for a human being to become whole, complete, and perfect like Christ must include suffering. It must be a path of tears. Suffering that is against ourselves, our sinful flesh. When I come up against myself, that is a hard thing to face. In my relationships with you, in my relationships with family, when I come up against myself and I realize the sinfulness of my heart, I suffer in that. If I truly am to deal with it, I have to suffer in it. And there's a grief. Suffering against the world that's broken as it is. When I look at the brokenness of the world, there should be a grief in it. The tragedy that we see, the injustice, there's a grief in that. And to suffer against it is to lead a life in which there are tears. Tears not just on behalf of ourselves, but on behalf of others. And suffering against the devil. The prince of this world who seeks to deceive you and to destroy you. Listen, all of us 
face temptation in our lives. All of us face the pressures to believe things that are not true about God, about ourselves, about others. And to suffer against those lies, to suffer against the temptations and the attempted deceits of the evil one. There is grief and pain in that. But the only path to becoming truly whole and perfect is the path that's paved by Christ. It's the path that leads to His throne of grace where we can always receive the help that we need to press on. To press on in a faith that is often filled with tears. So I want to ask you to conclude. Are you living a life of listening to God and obeying Him? Are you living a life of listening to Him through His Word? So, is God's Word important to you? The church has always said that this is God's inspired revelation to teach us about who He is and the nature of the world and the nature of ourselves. Are you listening to Him? Are you listening to God through the teaching of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church? Are you listening to what you want to believe when you read this and the way that you want to see it? And are you listening to God through godly counsel? When you face the pressures of the world, when you come up against yourself, do you go the way that you want to go or do you ask for godly counsel? People that you know that you can trust, they'll tell you the hard things. Are you living a life of listening to God and obeying to Him? Obeying Him? And are you offering yourself to God every day as Christ did through deep and sometimes even tear-filled prayers, trusting that God is the only one who's able to save you from death? Listen, the option besides not living this Christianity with tears is to live a false life. That's what the person was offering to John. He's called the savage in Brave New World. John the savage. Because he's living like no one else will. The person was offering him a humanity that is not actually human. And if you don't follow Christ, the only option is to live a diminished life a diminished humanity, to become less whole, less complete. Whether you are living this kind of life before God or you're not, the action to take is the same. All of us need to go to God's throne of grace. This is what Christ invites us to. Come to the throne of grace where we have a high priest who is willing to help us in our time of need, who was made perfect through sufferings on our behalf and offered himself, gave his life to make us clean, to show us his mercy and to give us the strength we need to continue on. So this land is a place where we will learn to come to this merciful high priest. And in coming to him, we will be helped by him to obey him and in love him the ways he's called us to love him.
Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for offering your life in the form of loud cries and prayers. And we thank you that your offering was received. And we thank you that you invite us to your throne of grace to receive your mercy and to receive the help we need in our and at every moment of our lives. And we ask that you would give us the strength to continually come, to listen to you, and to obey you. And we pray that our listening and our obeying might become one. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.